Good morning, everybody. Good morning to you. If you're joining us online, wherever you may be today, we're glad you're with us. So sometimes, perhaps you've noticed it, maybe you've experienced it. In a larger context, something that seems like a smaller thing actually can become really, really significant. Like one sentence can change a whole relationship. Something somebody says at some moment to somebody. Sometimes that change could be wonderful and sometimes it could be hard and difficult. But sometimes one seemingly small moment can change so much. I think a lot of times, for instance, um, sports offers this kind of analogy. Like if you're a baseball person, you could be like that one pitch in the fourth inning changed the entire game. What happened as a result of that one pitch, right? And there's a lot of pitches thrown in a baseball game. It's like that one pitch and the whole game changed. Maybe one post and everything changes. Maybe somebody posts and it hurts somebody else and one post in the midst of a big social media world. Or maybe you post and then you wish you could get the post back because one seemingly small thing can be really big in proportion. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is this thing. I mean, in a sense, you could look at the whole big world, you could look at all of history, you could look at all of humanity, and I would posit that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant, impactful thing that's ever happened in human life. But you know what's so funny? The resurrection didn't come with a lot of fanfare. It didn't come with a bunch of celebrity endorsements and advancement. It didn't come with a social media campaign, didn't come with a military parade. It was a Sunday morning and a couple of women went to the tomb. And lo and behold, it's the quietness and the emptiness that changes the world. It just seems so contrary. If it's the biggest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, it should have fireworks and all kinds of advance notice and a big marketing campaign. None of that. <clears throat> And then after the resurrection, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, go back to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. I've long been mystified about that. Wait, everything that's happened has been in Jerusalem. All the disciples are in Jerusalem. Like, why go back to Galilee? We're all here. That's a long trip to go back to Galilee. Why, Jesus, don't you just kind of hang with the guys there in Jerusalem? Why are you telling them to go back to Galilee? I've never really read anything much written on that, but I've begun to think that it may be something like this. Galilee is where those guys live their everyday lives. Galilee is where those guys make a living, and now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, those guys are going back to Galilee, they're going back to their fishing nets, they're going back to work as they've known it, they're going back to their families as they've known it, they're going back to that weird uncle who's a pain that they've known and the resurrection, I think, Jesus is saying to them, the implications of this are for your everyday living. 
right? So you come off Easter Sunday like we did last week, and Wes was sharing that it was a wonderful celebration and all that, but Monday's coming. And you're going back to sales quotas, you're going back to demanding bosses, you're going back to the normal stuff of life. But I think the implications of the resurrection are exactly intended for that. I think it's one of the reasons Jesus said, I want to meet you in Galilee. So the tomb is empty, it's quiet, it's a surprise. And what we're going to talk about now is the implications of that tomb being empty. You see, because once that tomb is empty, if you read the Gospels closely, you see that the disciples are all going through these layers of like, what does that mean? Well, this could mean this. And if the tomb is empty, then does it mean that we're really forgiven? Does it mean that Jesus is God? Does it mean that I have eternal life? Does it mean that death is defeated? You see the disciples going through a lot of this. What does it mean? Therefore, what do we believe? Once the tomb is empty, so much of what we believe begins to take its shape. It's as though the lights were turned on in a partially lit room. Or just the last couple of days, uh, Elizabeth and I with some friends were up in the mountains and it was lovely and uh, Friday evening, it was all cloudy and kind of gray, but then as the sun was getting low, it came out from under the clouds and it just lit up everything with that soft late day light and the rhododendrons in bloom, and the red buds, and the dogwoods on the hillsides, everything just like came to life. In a sense, once Jesus is resurrected, these disciples, most of whom were trained and grown from the time they were little kids in the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, all of a sudden they start now seeing so many of these Hebrew scriptures that they were raised on as little kids, and they're like, now I know what that means. Now I know what Isaiah meant when he wrote that. Now look what Jeremiah said in, in Jeremiah 31. It's as though a dimly lit room gets lit up with bursting light, and now we begin to reckon with the implications and begins to shape what we believe and begins to give us hope and a foundation in that believing. Since Jesus is alive, said another way, this changes what we believe about God, about the world, about life, about ourselves. It's like that light shining through the clouds. All those Old Testament hints, dimly lit, are now full of bright light. So what to think, what to make of it? So that's why we're going to be focusing on these core beliefs. And so we're calling this series Anchors. Okay, so I think it bears paying a little attention and spending a little time on the anchor metaphor. Okay, so a couple months ago I was talking in a sermon about when I was a little kid, my friends and I grew up in the summers and we were on little boats and we were on the water a lot. So if you're a boat person, you know how important an anchor is. An anchor is what gives you stability. An anchor is what gives you stabilization, steadiness. The question you want to know about the anchor is, does it hold? Is the anchor holding? You know, I never saw an anchor that was made out of like a ball that just rolls on the bottom of the ocean or the lake. The anchor has prongs in it, and whenever you throw an anchor out, the question is, is it holding? That's what you want an anchor to do, is it holding? So then we have this metaphor, which is if, if the boat, in the analogy, 
is you and your life. The anchor gives you stability in the storms, in the confusions, and all of that sort of thing, right? So if you're a boater, you know, you want to throw the anchor out and you want it to hold. I can remember one time in the summer, my brother and I were in a boat, and we were drifting towards some rocks, and my brother's like, throw the anchor out, throw the anchor out. So I pick up the anchor and I throw it out. I just forgot to tie the anchor line to the boat. <laughs> so we're like watching the line go, and they're like, ah, too late. I'm like, you said throw the anchor out. <laughs> yes, but when you throw the anchor out, we have to be attached to it. Okay, so let's keep going with this metaphor. If the anchor are the truths of God, and the question is, do they hold? And you and your life are the boat, that anchor line that connects your life to God, that anchor line is faith. That's how we're connected. That anchor line, that's faith. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because the anchor is invisible. You don't see an anchor. You throw it under the water, you don't see it. When you meet somebody, you don't know what they believe just when you meet them. I mean, unless they're like advertising it on their shirt or something. But like we human beings, well, I was going to say we're really good at doing this. It's a bad thing to do, but we're good at doing a bad thing. We are so quick to make judgments about people like, ooh, I know this guy. I can tell by what he's wearing. I can tell this guy, you know, like I have... One of my favorite pairs of shoes is like some Birkenstocks I wear on the weekend. You're like, oh, the guy wears Birkenstocks. He's a left-wing hippie. You can't trust him. On the other hand, I like to play golf. I have like a golf bumper sticker on a cart. Oh, he likes to play golf. He's a right-wing elitist. Like, we do that. We make those kind of judgments. I'm thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bust all the paradigms. I'm going to play golf in my Birkenstocks. (laughs) So... What is that hidden thing that is anchoring your life and my life? And of course, here we are in the church. And so we're going to talk about seven points of belief that our denomination has highlighted as the seven core anchoring points, the essentials. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about today is who is God? And I I said at the 930, I want to say number one and then the other night, Elizabeth and I went to see Hamilton. I don't know if you've seen Hamilton, but I can't say number one without thinking about 10 dual commandments, number one. Okay, so if you haven't seen Hamilton, sorry, I know that's weird, but here's, here's number one, and it reads this way. We believe in one God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's our anchor point belief number one that we're, we're going to talk about a bit today. Okay, so here's, here's what happens in church sometimes. We had the Apostles' Creed to share today. And some of you maybe come from more liturgical church backgrounds, and maybe you're used to saying the Apostles' Creed every week. And you're already writing your email in your head to me that's going to come tomorrow to tell me that we should have the Apostles' Creed every week. And, you know, because that's what Christians do, right? So the church I was in before Starting Hope a long time ago, great church. And every week in worship, the Apostles' Creed was recited. 
And one day, somebody in the church came to me and said, hey, I want to ask you a question. I said, I said, why? They said, I was on a plane. I was sitting next to a guy. The conversation turned to religion. And he asked me, well, what do Christians believe? And he said, I just didn't know what to tell him. And I said, did you think about, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, suffered under Pontius Pilate, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From there, he shall come to judge both the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Did you think about that? <laughs> so, so here's what I mean. If you'll be patient with me being sort of a jerk. I, we say that, right? But if it's like every week, it's like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, blah, 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 blah. What time is lunch? So when we're looking at some of these core ideas, hopefully it'll help us really ask questions of them. Maybe skeptical questions. Maybe you'll be like, do I really believe that? Is that just church talk? I would love for you to ask those kind of questions because that's how we grow. So a couple of scripture verses that speak to one God in three persons. Genesis 1.1 opens the entirety of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm not sure there could be a sentence with larger implications in the history of literature. See, because ultimately for us as human beings, there's one of two ways to look at life. Either we look at life that there is a God who made everything and made us, or we're on our own. And you can come up with lots of derivatives off each of those, but one of those two is going to be the main prevailing way that we live. Now, a lot of people have been taught to say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in God, so I just live my life for myself, and that gets all kind of confusing. I think we all understand that, even though it's confusing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we live in a God-made world with all the beauty, the artistry, and the intentionality of God's love woven through it. We live in a God-made world who created us, and this God that we're talking about, his character is love. His vision for our living is flourishing happy, joyful lives of meaning and value. Or we, one way or another, make it up according to the way we think or feel or are driven. So that's a big one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John opens with quite similar words. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John is using the word, word, in a poetic way. And he's meaning Jesus. But he's speaking of Jesus in a poetic usage of the word, word, which is confusing. And he says, in the beginning, this is effectively how it reads. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. So now what we're getting little glimpses into is that Jesus has always existed with God the Father, and we're going to move in to bring the Holy Spirit in in just a moment. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've heard some people say occasionally, I don't know of any place in the Bible that clearly says there is a Trinitarian idea of God. One God, three persons. 
Okay, so I think we have a couple of verses that could help us there. I do think we have some that give us this kind of clarity. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. This is at Jesus' baptism. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. So we have Jesus being baptized. We have the Spirit of God descending like a dove. We have a voice from heaven who is God the Father saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. This gets even a bit more specifically articulated when Jesus himself says after the resurrection, speaking to the disciples, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus speaking, and he's saying, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Did the word obey make you hiccup? The word obey is not a very popular word in our culture in our day. It's a little bit like um, subject, be subject to. And so for many of us in a culture like ours, it raises a lot of objections. But here's what I think is helpful to know. We all obey what we believe. You can't not do it. You, you can't not obey what you believe. What you believe will shape what you do, the decisions you make, and how you live. So whether you're a Christian, a Jewish, Muslim, atheist, somewhere in a big mixture of all of them, every human being obeys. Every human being serves what you believe. So in my mind, as I'm thinking this through, I want to ask the question, is, is what I believe, is it ser- and I'm serving it, is it going well? Is that, a good, is that a good construct? So if there's one, big picture is there's a God who made everything, I can either obey and serve that God, or I make up the rules of life, and I can obey and serve what I think or feel. In my own journey, and a lot of people in churches around the world, they came to the end of themselves when they realized living for myself with what I think and feel hadn't gone so great. I need help. I need something bigger outside of me. So if we continue to play on the anchor and the navigation motif, navigation requires that you find where you are by referencing yourself to other fixed objects, other stationary things, other immovable, enduring things. So finding where we are requires something outside of ourselves. If all we do is look within, we get more and more and more confused. Okay, so teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So now we're saying there is a God who has always existed. This is a challenge for us, right? Because anything we've ever known in life had a starting point and it has an ending point. So to grasp that there is a God who never began and will never end, it's hard for us. But I think intellectually we can get the idea. God is the constant that always is. We could use was, which would be true for us. God doesn't have past tense. 
God's always in the present tense. That's another sermon for another day. But God always existed. When he created the universe and human beings, then progressional time as we know it and experience it begins for us. But it's not the beginning of God. Then we begin to get into the Trinity. God has always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a Christian understanding of God, and it's unique to Christianity. All other religions are, there is an individual, solo, singular, one being, God, or there's tons of gods. This idea that there is one God and three persons is unique to Christianity. It's a small point, but when I was trying to wrestle through questions of religion, I thought to myself, I understand how we could make up the one God idea. I understand how we human beings could make up the millions of gods idea. But I don't think any human being could have come up with this Trinity idea. And it's part of one of the reasons that I'm helped by it. One reason I don't think we made it up is because nobody understands it. And I don't think we would have made up something that we don't have a clue about. So everything we try to do to understand it is us just trying to get little teeny more glimpses of it. So one God and three persons, how does that work? It means that God lives in perfect unity. The three have always lived together in perfect relationship. The Father has always served and loved the Son. The Son has always served and loved the Father. The Son has always served and loved the Spirit. The Spirit has always served and loved the Son. The Spirit has always served and loved the Son. The Son has always served and loved the Spirit. The Spirit has always served and loved the Father. The Father has always served and loved the Son. It's perfect oneness. See, for there to be oneness, there has to be unity. And unity requires that you have more than one thing. When you have the more than one together in perfect love, submitting to one another, now you have oneness, that is unity. So this begins to get important. In John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying, it was at the occasion of the Last Supper, and he's praying for the disciples, and he's talking to God, of course, as he's praying, and he says, Father, now may they be one as you and I are one. In other words, this idea of the Trinity and the unity of the Trinity is very important because it is who God is. It is how God has always existed. And so when Jesus is praying for this unity, this loving unity among his followers, he's praying that we would experience and live as he has always existed in this kind of unity. So maybe over the years, if you've been around church, you have heard various efforts to describe the Trinity. And it's like water comes in three states, right? It's liquid, gas, and it's solid. And I appreciate that. Like, it's the same thing. It's water, but three different states. I appreciate it. Every one of these that I've heard about, like, they're a little bit helpful, but then they leave me with more questions. The most helpful illustration of the Trinity that I've ever experienced, about 10 years ago, one of the folks, no longer on our staff, great guy, who did video and creative arts, created a little video piece about the Trinity, and so in his creativity, he found this very old-timey fan, 
like, you know, kind of old-timey metal fan with three blades on it, like your great-grandma used to cool the kitchen with or something. And he found this old-timey fan, three blades, and he removed the three blades, and he put three electric light bulb sockets in there. So now, instead of three blades, you got these three light bulb sockets, and he went out and got three of the, you know what Edison bulbs are? They're like very soft light, old-timey looking. And so he got three Edison bulbs, but each of them was a different shape, all of which becomes very important. Then he screws the three Edison bulbs in, and when they're all still, you see the three Edison bulbs sitting there, and you see them distinctly from one another. They're the same type of bulb, but they have different shape. Then you turn the fan on, and the light begins to spin, and it becomes one steady ring of light. You can't distinguish one bulb from the other. It's just a spinning ring of light. And so you've got these three bulbs. Now the the energy among them moving and working, and it's one ring of light that's emanating the energy, and you can't distinguish one from the other. But when you turn the fan off, you see they have a distinctiveness. It's the best illustration I've ever known for the Trinity. So anchors, these beliefs that can hold our life together. We live in very confusing times, and everything is being deconstructed. Political beliefs, beliefs about human beings, sexuality, gender, all kinds of stuff. And I hope that in the midst of living in this, we can do this with a deep love for people. Agree with them or disagree with them. One of the great things that could be said about the church but isn't often said, what if the church could express its views with a deep love for people and a deep understanding of what it is to be a human being and desire love and acceptance and affirmation? Doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody. And Lord knows our culture is not good at disagreeing these days. Where the left is shouting at the right saying it's their fault, the right is shouting at the left saying it's their fault, I grow really weary of all of that. But one of the really important questions behind all of it is, what's your motive? Our motive is love. It must be. If it's not, it's not of Jesus Christ. So, Dallas Willard, who usually writes kind of sophisticated erudite stuff, had a surprisingly simple thing I quoted. He said, He said, if I say that I believe that God is love and I get that right on a theology test, when I'm actually a jerk in my relationships with other people, then I have not come to the kind of belief that Jesus is interested in. So what we learn, we receive as God has given it, God is love. So this is the foundational aspect of what we believe. It comes from a God who is love. It also comes with a vision of human flourishing and well-being. That is God's design and that's God's intention for human flourishing and well-being. God will give his people limits. And you know what? That's a good thing because none of us can survive without limits. A human being with no limits will destroy him or herself. We are so good at self-sabotaging destruction. Give a human being no limits, and we'll go into places of chaos and despair. So the limits that God gives us are a gift of his love for our well-being. So this is what we believe about God. The motive is love. 
his vision, his design, and what he's designed it for is human flourishing and well-being. Even in the midst of complex days like the ones we live in, So in all of that challenge, if everything is going to be deconstructed, our own emotional well-being is also going to be deconstructed. And that deconstruction, without anything being clear and true, leaves us awash in confusion and distortion and indignity and arguing and left to go to its full extent, despair. The church ought to not want people to despair. And love becomes the foundation of our way. The motive is human flourishing. Said another way, solid belief holds off despair. To live a life with no sense of what I believe becomes exceptionally confusing and ultimately leads to despair. So the motive is love. The vision is for human flourishing, the dignity of people, and to give life. It is not expressed with power to defeat and beat the enemy. It's an expression of God's love. And here we see Christ, particularly in the last days of his life. Dallas Willard goes on to say, The Bible says that all attempts to do things that don't start with God will betray us. Deuteronomy 30, this is God speaking to his people. And I feel like these sentences are particularly apropos in the confusions and the hardship of our day. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live and that you may love the Lord your God, obey him, there we have it again, and hold fast to him. Now here's the big sentence. For he is your life. For he is your life. When we live in a culture that is so combative and so confused, is it possible that a voice of love that offers true God-given vision could offer the culture an expression of love? Because we all have beliefs, including People who say, I don't have any belief, that's a belief. And it means that you will obey yourself as your highest. We all submit to them and we all live from them. If we don't shine God's heart in the world with the belief of love for all the confusion, then we are aiding and abetting the despair So how to do that? Really tricky. How to love people very deeply? Quite a journey. But that is our calling as we do this. So we live in a God-made world. If you could, listen to the prepositions. Who made us for life, from love, to flourish. In Genesis 1.27, we see the description of God creating us. For God created human beings in his own image. Okay, number one, in his own image means for perfect love in a relationship of unity because the Trinity have always existed this way. He goes on to say, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So N.T. Wright said, but once more it may dawn on us that there's not just a larger world out there, there's a larger God out there. 
He's not just a celestial cleaner up and sorter out of our messes and wants. He's God. He's the living God. And he's our father. If we linger here, we may find our priorities quietly turned inside out. The contents may remain. The order will change. With that change, we move at last from paranoia to prayer, from fuss to faith. That's his way of saying it. So a question then for each of us, if all of us obey or serve what we believe, then I think it bears asking, what is it that I believe for each of us? And is it an anchor that holds? Does it give me stability in the storms of life? Does it give me hope, comfort, peace of mind and heart? So I'll close just with a thought. Sometimes when you want to learn something, it's helpful to learn where are the ways that we tend to make mistakes? Where are the ways that we tend to make errors? I happened to be fly fishing the last couple of days on a long weekend with some friends. I don't know if you like fly fishing or not, but people get all gooey about how spiritual it is. I think that kind of strains the metaphor a little bit, but nonetheless, fly casting is a little bit tricky, and it's easy to make a lot of mistakes. So as you want to get better, one of the things you want to learn is how do I minimize making the mistakes, okay? In Romans chapter 1, there's a very, I think, meaningful expression from the Apostle Paul. His heart is love for the world, and he's really articulating how we're most prone to make the mistakes. He says, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. That's the payload sentence right there. Knew God, but there were no implications in my life. I didn't worship God. I didn't actually turn my heart over to this God. And by no means did I give him thanks in my devotion and my worship. And then he goes on to say, and so they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Now, this is when life gets really confusing when we come up with foolish ideas of what God is like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. And here, with the resurrection of Jesus, the light is beginning to go on. And those early disciples are trying to figure out what this means and what does this mean about what we believe. And the resurrection of Jesus is the event that gives birth to the church and begins to bring to light all of what God wants us to know as his children in his love he wants us to know the depth of his love. He wants us to know his vision of flourishing. He wants us to know that his limits are for that flourishing and from that love. So Easter, the resurrection, becomes the foundational ignition for us beginning to learn what it is that we really believe. Tim Keller said it this way, Jesus, however, understands that there is a God who is uncreated, beginningless, infinitely transcendent, who made this world, who keeps everything in the universe going so that all the molecules, all the stars, all the solar systems are being held up by the power of this God. And Jesus says, that's who I am. So wherever you may be today, however all of this kind of stuff lands for you, the motive is love, the vision is for flourishing, and it's to lead us to life. So sometimes when I'm trying to understand stuff, get my head around it, pray, I'll journal, I'll do a little bit of creative writing. And I was thinking about Easter 
And the fact that the biggest event in the history of life came so incognito, so quietly. And so I jotted down, it's so like God, so like his character and his upside down kingdom that on Easter, an empty grave assures us of fullness. A silent place shouts of his glory. And like the modest hero who wishes no applause is our champion Jesus, whose absence wins history's greatest victory. Let's pray. Father, God in heaven, you have told us, I long to adopt you into my belovedness. You have told us that you can handle what is needed to forgive all of our sin. You have told us that you have set your heart upon us. So Lord, would you help us come in to the gift of what this anchor can mean, that you, the Lord who created everything, love us with a personal and everlasting love. We're so grateful to you, Lord, and so grateful to you, Lord Christ, that the tomb is empty. Amen.